Blog Talk Radio. I hate when my husband works late. Being at home, alone at night, hearing every little creak. It's uncomfortable. I thought I was just being paranoid. Then my girlfriend said she felt the same way when her husband travels. Until they had what she calls their Vivint talk. Vivint. My friend calls it the best home security system out there. It's super easy to use and fit right into our budget. And I love my video cameras. I can see what's going on in and around my home right from my computer or smartphone. It's actually kind of funny. I told my husband, if you're going to be traveling or working late, I'm getting Vivint. And it's made all the difference. Call now. Not only is installation free, you'll get up to $1,500 worth of Vivint security cameras and equipment today at no charge. Seriously, $1,500. Just pay as little as $99 for activation. Call 877-776-3430. Restrictions apply. 48 or 60-month agreement at minimum $49.99 per month required. Not available in Louisiana. See Vivid.com for license numbers. Blog Talk Radio. This is the Body of Christ Church, inviting you to listen to our program, Repentance is the Key, where we examine repentance according to the Holy Bible and the teachings of Jesus Christ. The show airs every Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So remember the words written in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I gave Moses ten commandments upon two tablets of stone Led Israel out of Egypt and then promised them a home Samson slew the Philistines with a donkey chop well, We're going to start the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 But what we're dealing with is a spirit that's very prevalent in the world A spirit that's very powerful A spirit that's very formidable And it's a spirit that has cost many people their lives in this world it's a spirit that people spend millions upon billions of dollars in medical research and medication and all type of things trying to deal with and fight, but it's something that really, according to the scriptures, is the only way to really deal with. What we're talking about is that demon of depression. Now, it can spark in many different ways, depending on who the person is. What's, what triggers it for one person will not be the same as what triggers it for everybody. And that's the reason why you turn on the TV. You can't turn the TV without some type of commercial about some type of medication, some type of therapy, some type of treatment that's going to take away all of these feelings that you have. But when you look in the scriptures, those things were far more than just an imbalance of hormones or brain fluid or anything dealing with anything dealing with strictly a chemical reaction inside your body. It was something that was far more than that. It was a spirit that came on people that was so strong that it could cause them to lose their life, whether it was by succumbing to the sorrow or whether it was by taking it into your own hands. So when I'm starting the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 11, Now all these things happen unto them, for example, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world will come. So when you read up above, it starts speaking about the wilderness, and it starts speaking about all the things that happened to our forefathers in the wilderness and all the sins that they committed and all the lust that came upon them that caused them to lose their life when the Most High had to judge them. When people think about depression and different things like that, they don't think of it as a sin. They think of it as a sickness and things of that nature, whether it be mental or physical. But when you look in the scriptures, even when you look at how historically it was categorized, it was categorized as one of the seven deadly sins. A lot of people, when you think about seven deadly sins, you know that it's not a definitive list inside the scriptures. They were all deadly if you decided to give in to them. But you look at the jealousy, the, the, the envy, the wrath, the gluttony, lust, wrath, but also on that list was sloth. Now, people think of slothfulness as just a 
person being lazy, or they don't want to work, they don't want to do anything. That's not what the definition was. That was a simplified version of what it was as far as the seven deadly sins, if you will. But what it was really going into was something else called avarice and something else which was called acedia, with different terms that they used for it, but it was going into depression, despair, hopelessness, powerlessness, and the inability to break out of this. The reason why it was seen as a sin and one of the worst sins a person could commit is because it's the exact opposite of faith. It's the exact opposite of hope. It's the exact opposite of the trust that the Most High said you had to have. So in a sense, when they saw a person giving into that spirit, they said that person is possessed with devil and demons and was committing one of the worst sins a person could commit, which is losing faith in the Most High. That being said, we can read that scripture once more. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world will come. So when you're speaking about all these things being admonitions about how we're not supposed to fall into the same lust as our forefathers fell into in the wilderness, and how we're not supposed to go into the same sins that they committed in the wilderness, and how those things are examples to us that we're not supposed to follow, you can look at our forefathers in the wilderness and see that one of the spirits that they fell into was that despair and hopelessness. Because even though the Most High promised them so many things, because of their disbelief, they despaired at every turn. Every time they turned around, they took me like, okay, we were brought out here to die. Oh, we don't have no food. Oh, we don't have no water. Why did you bring us here, Moses? You did this to kill us. You brought us here because there was no more graves in Egypt, so that's why the Lord brought us here. That's despair. And that was a total opposite of what the Most High had told us that he was going to do for us. And not only that, it was a blatant disregard of the promises the Most High had made to us through all the prophets. So it shows you that it's more than just saying, I don't feel good today. I don't want to get up out of bed and go to work. It was going into a condition that was far deeper and more sinister than anybody can imagine because it was going into the lack of faith and hopelessness and despair that comes when you're not dealing in the spirit of Christ. Verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Read. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. So just taking that piece by piece, a lot of us know that scripture by heart, like the back of our head. There is no temptation that taketh you except such as is common to man. Common to man means that it's common. It's not just you. It happens to us all. So regardless of what problems and issues we're dealing with, is it something that's unique just to us, according to the scripture, or is it something that's common to everybody? It's common. How do we know that? Because the scriptures tell us that. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, showed us that it's common to us. How did the Lord show us that it was common to all men? Because he knew what it was like to be afraid. He knew what it was like to be sad. He knew what it was like to lose a loved one. He knew what it was like to go through all of those things and show us that through his example that he was that perfect and faithful high priest because he was the one and only one that can go through and show by his life an example that he went through every single temptation that we did, but yet was without sin. Meaning that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he was about to be sacrificed, praying earnestly to that to the Father in that despair, he still made the choice that he was not going to let that despair overpower him and overcome him, but he was going to do exactly what the Father commanded him to do. Did he or did he not set that example? He set that example. So when it says that there's no temptation that taketh you as such as is common to man, that's what it means. It's common. But the trick that Satan plays on every man, woman, and child in this room is he convinces us, and when I say us, I mean everybody, even myself, he convinces us that it's only us. And he does that very well. So if you're going through a different Temptation, whether it be uh, you're fighting a, a lascivious demon, where you're fighting different type of sexual lusts. You might be compelled to speak to somebody about it or go get counsel about it or ask for help or scriptures about it. 
But what does Satan come along and say? It's just you. You're the only person. You open your mouth, and once you open your mouth, you're going to be revealed. And everybody's going to know exactly what you are. And so you be quiet, then you fall into that same spirit of hopelessness, trying to pull yourself out of a pit that you can't pull yourself out of. Not by yourself. That's why we read the scripture in Ecclesiastes all the time about what? Two being better than one. Don't we read that scripture a lot? Mm -hmm. Two being better than one, they have a good reward for their labor. As a matter of fact, let's get that instead of just quoting it because it's a good one. And like the brother brought out, iron chopping his iron. So on that same vein, and it's regardless of whatever it is, it could be lasciviousness, it could be anger, it could be different lusts. You can have people that, and we're going to go through the different things that we, as we go to the class about different things that trigger it. For some people, they go through those depressions because of somebody close to them died. Some people... Some people are overcome with guilt about sins that they may have committed in the past that they've never been able to get over. Some people go through things because they don't measure up to the worldly image of beauty or the worldly image of success. There are people that can't overcome that, and that and that drowns them. So there's things that people go through all the time that leads to that demise and going down into that into that pit. So tell them where you are. And read that. Ecclesiastes 4 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. It says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. But he has not another to help him up. So when you look at what the scripture is going into about being better than one, that's the reason why you can't give in to the wiles of the devil. You can't give in to the tricks of Satan when he makes you believe, as he always makes us believe, that what we're dealing with, we're dealing with by ourselves. What we're going through, we're going through alone. So once he gets you isolated and alone exactly where he wants you, the scripture says, woe unto him that is alone when he falls. What does that woe mean? Destruction. Destruction. So is that just put out there arbitrarily, or does it mean that? It means that in every sense of, in every sense of the word, even in, a, even in a carnal sense, in a carnal sense, if you fell into a deep water and you were drowning, and you didn't know how to swim, that's it for you. If you ride alone, you skid off the road and flip over and the car blow up and there's nobody to help you out, you're about to die. So the scriptures are letting you know that in every situation that you're dealing in, if you don't have another to help you, you're going to be overcome and you're going to be destroyed. And even though I gave carnal examples just now, there are examples that aren't carnal. Those are examples that are spiritual. That's why we go into what we're dealing with about this whole thing about that spirit of depression. The reason why that spirit... We're dealing with this class is because there's a lot of people in the church that are dealing with that right now. We're not just talking about people in the world. We're not just talking about people that don't know the scriptures. We're not just talking about the people you see in those TV commercials about Abilify and all these different drugs and pills they pop in. We're talking about people that are in the church that are fighting against that spirit and don't know how to overcome it. One of the reasons why they don't know how to overcome it is because they don't know how to apply the scripture that we just now read. Read that verse again, so I know you are again, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. So one of the, that, one of the part of the good reward of their labor is the fact that we're all fighting for salvation. We're all in this church for the same reason. We pray that we're all here for the same reason, which is to make it to the kingdom of heaven. So if we're all laboring for the same thing, then can we or can we not help each other out along that way? Whether it be by our wisdom, our experiences, our examples, we're helping each other fight this fight. That's why I said they have a good reward for our their labor, because our reward at the end of the day is the kingdom of heaven. Continue. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. So do we or do we not fall sometimes? Do we or do we not get get taken overtaken in lust? Do we get, or do we not get overtaken in temptations all the time? That's why Galatians 6 and 1 is written. If a brother 
He yeah, says, man, be able to overtake another fault. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That's what the scriptures tell you, Galatians 6 and 1. So when it's telling you that, it's letting you know that it's not only just a coincidence that we're side by side, that most of paired us with each other so we could be there to help each other. So continue. Well, woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have eat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So, Kadar gave um, a beautiful example of what that threefold cord was in many of the recent classes. <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, uh, brothers with brothers, friends with friends, even husbands with wives. And the example that Kadar Gadawan brought out, which was a really good one, was the fact that the threefold cord is still going to be Jesus Christ as well. Because if we're keeping the commandments and he's abiding with us as he promised that he would, then you have your third person and you have your threefold cord, which cannot be broken. But when you allow Satan to deceive you into believing that you are by yourself and that you are alone and that you are supposed to go through this alone and that you have to overcome whatever the things you're going through by yourself, you're only setting yourself up for a fall. And not only are you setting yourself up for a fall, you're setting yourself up for destruction because that's the only thing that's going to come out of it. When it talks about destruction, it could be a physical destruction where people go so far as to do things that damage themselves or even go as far as to take their own lives. You've got people that are given into abundance of alcohol. Is that destroying them? Yes, because the scriptures tell you that no drunkard is going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. You can read that in Revelations chapter 20, 21, and you can also read that in First Corinthians chapter 5, about the drunkards, and in other places as well. So if you're doing things like that, where you're sitting back and you don't want to talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ that are right here, but in the slide, you think that the only way you can handle whatever you're going through is by taking a shot of yak every single morning before you go to work, then something is wrong. You've got issues. Whether you want to admit it or not, you got issues. And you need to get that under control because that's not the way the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to overcome the things that we're dealing with. Whether people are going into alcoholism, whether people are going back to old demons, going after drugs, because just believe there are people that can relapse and go into those things as well, regardless of whether or not you know the commandments. And that has happened in the churches as well. So it's not just going always into a physical death. It's going into the detrimental things that we do to ourselves that can take us away from this faith. Do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, the only thing is, and, and just keep in mind, the whole way that the world sets up, is set up right now, it's set up, to, it, 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 it's ridiculous, but it's set up in a manner that they make you feel guilty about feeling sad about certain things or being depressed about certain things. And as we go through the class, you're going to find out that there are reasons to be sad. It's just how we deal with those things. And I think back to this friend of mine who was on an antidepressant drug. <clears throat> and I was like, you know what, And I was just shocked. She was like, yeah, well, you know, my father had died, and the doctor said I was too sad, and he put me on it after my father died. And she had been on it all this time. And, you know, we went through the scripture today. Well, I don't know. It was last night. All the days are merged into one. But 1 Corinthians 3 and 19, it tells you what? The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Because one of the things is people really just shut away from dealing with how the scripture tells us we're supposed to deal. And they turn to a chemical form of trying to get rid of something that's going to happen naturally in you. Well, since you, um, because you said you went there, we can deal with that now. Because the whole deal is that we were going to just touch on different things that trigger it in different people. And, of course, death death and, and dying was high on the list because that's something that some people over, can overcome in a relatively short amount of time. And some other people, 
they're going to be carrying it for the rest of their life. But it's like Kajal was bringing out. It's not the sin to be sad. It's not the sin or to go through that feeling of pangs of depression. The sin is when you allow that to overcome you to the point that you can't even function as far as what the Most High called you into this ministry for. That's when this becomes a sin. You look at our forefathers, they grieved about this. When you look at how Joseph, Jacob was when he lost Joseph, he said that he was going to go down to his grave grieving for his son. Nobody could comfort him. Yeah, it was like there was nothing anybody could do to comfort him concerning that. When you read about David, when the Mosad smote his son and said that this child is going to die, David was in ashes and sackcloth all the time that that child was sick up until when? He and when the child died, what did he do? He got up and he got up and um, he, he recovered. Basically. <laughs> he got up and washed his face, went into his house and started eating, and they were sitting there like, "What is this about? Isn't it the common the common thing for people to do when it, when somebody dies is to mourn and ashes and sackcloth and not to eat and fast?" He said, "Listen, I did that already." He said, I went through all of that hoping that the Lord would spare the child. But since he made his verdict final, it don't make sense to me to move anymore. Yeah, that, that, that speaks volumes about David's faith, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew that the Lord's word was good, but he was pleading for that mercy. Oh, yeah. So, so the crying and mourning that he did at the time was just as though the child had always been dead. Yeah. He was hoping for a rescue. I wanted to go to this one because Akwai has brought it out already about Christ. Christ being that example of how he went through everything just as we did, and he was that example for us. So let's go real quick. This is John chapter 11. Did you have that? Um, I don't know. 11, and um, let's go kind of to the point in verse 32. And this is just to show you that Christ, you know, people try to say he was all this and he could, he wouldn't go through the things he went through. That's a lie. He went through grief. He went through suffering. And so let's read 11 and 32 because this is where Lazarus died. Go ahead. After 11, verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So think of the scenario, and it's not something that's uncommon because you know how when we all, people die, people say things, and they get all emotional. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, Lord, why weren't you here, and all that kind of stuff. This is what's happening at this time. Read on. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was Trouble. So what does that show you about Christ? Did Christ have sadness? Yes, he's Yes, he did. Go ahead. And said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so Jesus wept. He cried. So it shows you, he, the, what, what does the scripture say? There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. These are one of the scriptures right here that shows you Christ went through a lot of the same things that we went through, but it's how we deal with it. So now, look at what happened next. Go ahead. They said the Jews, behold, how he loved him. So they saw that love that Christ had in his weakness of a man and said, behold, how he loved him. And as you read on, you find out that Christ actually what? Raised him from the dead. And then because of that, Verse 45, verse 45, I'll read it, go ahead. It says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. So for that time, that was what was necessary to show the people, and then he was, he was able to bring them back to life. We know in our cases that's not going to happen. That was meant for that time to show the people that this is, this is, the Savior. This is the one that's going to die. But the point in the verse was to really look at the fact of how that thing went down, and when Lazarus, his good friend, had died, he was sad about it. 
So we're supposed to have those feelings. We're supposed to have those emotions. But it's a matter of how do you deal with it once it happens. And on that same point, there was a conversation that I was having with a brother recently about about um, how Jesus dealt with his grief and how even though he had situations that had made, made him sad and made him despair the same way any of us would have despaired, he still came right back and understood that as the example and as the high priest of Israel and as the one that we are supposed to follow, he gave us the perfect example. Now, I want to go to Matthew 14 to bring the point really home. Because, like, because all brought up with the situation with Lazarus, Jesus had friends. And not only did he have friends, he had a person in his life that was closer than a friend. He had a person in his life that was his cousin and also the person that baptized him. And who was that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was his cousin. And John the Baptist baptized him. John the Baptist was the one that paved the way for him and was the one that taught the people concerning him, which is why Jesus said out of his own mouth, there was no prophet that ever lived that was greater than John the Baptist. But we're going to read about John's death, and we're going to read about how the Lord handled it. Matthew chapter 14, start at verse 1. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servant, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So he, of course, don't know the history that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He don't know where they came from and that they all knew each other and that they grew up together and stuff like that with Elizabeth and Mary. So he's thinking, I know John. And this guy, Jesus, do those miracles. That must be John the Baptist. Now it's going to explain how John died. Verse 3. But Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip was. Read. But John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. So what happened is you had Herod who took his brother's wife, which is adultery. And John rebuked him, because keep in mind, we're living at a time, they're living at a time where the rulers of that time, just like the rulers in the past, they all knew that it was the Most High that let them rule. Even when you look at the Roman Empire, as wicked as they were, there was many of them that understood that. When you go through the history that in between the Apocrypha leading up to the New Testament, you know that the rulers of the Romans, you even read a little bit about it in the Apocrypha, how they was, had covenants with the, with the Israelites during the time when the Israelites were fighting the Greeks. Remember? Um, Anybody totally wrong? No, no. So they knew about our laws and customs and things like that. So it wasn't uncommon for a, a person like Herod to know the commandments of God. So he knew that he wasn't supposed to have his brother's wife and his adultery, but he took it anyway. And John rebuked him. Verse 5. And when he would have put them to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So he feared the multitude of the people because everybody knew that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. Continue. But when Herod's birthday was kept, ah, here's the infamous scripture. This is why Job witnesses don't keep birthdays. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with his oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. So she danced in front of him, and he promised to give her whatever she wanted. Continue. And she being instructed of her mother, and she being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. So, she was already instructed by her mother what to ask for. She told her that the mother already told her to ask for John the Baptist to say in a silver charger. A charger is like a platter. Continue. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the old saint. And then was set with him at meat. He commanded it to be given her. And the reason why I said that is because he was the king. He had given his word. And not only had he given his word, he gave his word in front of all the servants. And 
all of his guests, which means that they would look at him like, okay, if this guy breaks his word, he's not a trustworthy person. He loses he, lose credibility. Continue. And he sat and beheaded John in the prison. And his hand was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. So she brought a severed head to her mother. That's cold. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So now, they go and tell the Lord, John the Baptist is dead. He was beheaded by Herod. Let's read how the Lord dealt with it. Verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed death by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the city. So he heard that his cousin is dead. He heard that John the Baptist is dead, the one person who's alive that really knows who he is. Even the apostles didn't really understand who he was yet. And the scripture says that when he heard that, he went to a desert place apart. What is apartment? He went to be by himself. Like anybody else would want to be by themselves if something like that happened, wouldn't you? But what happened? When he went to that desert place apart, people heard about it and followed him. And what happened when he saw that they followed him? Verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them. And he healed their sick. So imagine that. Can you find a better example of how we're supposed to deal than that? Because here you have the Lord. He had the opportunity to give into despair. He had the opportunity to give into depression. He had the opportunity to just say, you know what? Don't y'all know what just happened to me? Don't y'all know that John the Baptist is dead? He could have been like, listen, I came here to be alone. But instead, right in that moment, when he looked and saw the multitude of the people, was he thinking about himself anymore? Not at all. No. He thought about them. And the scripture says that when he saw them, he was moved with compassion, and he healed their sick. And so if he's the example for us, then a lot of times we have to get past our own self-loathing and our own despair and our own depression and understand that the Most High brought us in here for a reason. He brought us in here to be followed in the image of his only begotten Son. And as things happen to us, day in and day out, that wear us down, that beat us down, that take us out the Spirit, that put us into that place where we want to just get into a ball, that bring us to that place where we want to just break down, a lot of times we have to remember that we've got a job to do. The rest of this world is lost. They are in darkness, and they are in gross darkness, like the Scripture said. And in that gross darkness, the only light they have are the people that are setting the example of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us that we have to be that city set on the hill. The scriptures tell us that we have to be that candle that's put up on that shelf. We are the light of the world. When, we, when we're following Christ, we are the light of the world. And as the light of the world, we can't take a day off just because we don't feel good. Yeah, and when you read that, to me, you see also part of the healing. That's part of the healing is to, to get back into what we're supposed to be doing, knowing where our focus is. Exactly. Well, you know what? One more thing, verse 15. Verse and when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the village, the villages, and buy themselves bill. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. So even at a time that was appropriate to send them away so he could have his own time, he said, No. Keep them here. They don't need to go away to eat. And then you know what happened as a result. He was. The fish, the medical fish, and the the bread. And so you see that even at that time, he understood, man, let's just keep moving forward. And that's a beautiful example because even though he was the Lord, and you know the example that he said at the Son of the Most High, but all through the scriptures it tells you the same thing. Because when you look at how people are, when they lose loved ones, some of you have not gone to those things. But some of you already have. And the ones that have are there as a comfort to the ones that have not when that time comes. Because it's going to come. It's inevitable. Unless the Lord comes back before it happens, and I'm not going to say that that's impossible, because it's very possible. 
But the scriptures still tell us that we're going to see these things. Why are we against the Lord's good pleasure? We, this is his judgment on all flesh. So looking at what the scriptures explain about us, how we're supposed to deal with it, there's none of us that have a loved one that we lost, that we know that our loved ones would sit back saying, I hope they mourn for me for the rest of their life so they go down to the grave, I hope they sad every single day and miss me every single day. Would they say that or would they be saying the exact opposite? The opposite. If they loved us, if they loved us, they would be hoping that we'd be able to overcome it. Yeah. If they loved us, they would be hoping that we weren't sad. If they loved us, they would be hoping that we were able to get on with our lives and have a life without that shadow of despair hanging over us. Because that's not something that they would want for any of us, if they loved us. And the scriptures tell us that as well. In Apocrypha, we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus chapter 14, and we're going to start at verse 17. So Ecclesiasticus 14, verse 17. All flesh waxes old as a garment. For the covenant for the beginning is, thou shalt die the death. So the most I told us that from the beginning. That was a covenant, an unbreakable contract and agreement. When we committed the first sins and brought death into the world, that was the contract. We were going to die to death. So that's why all flesh waxes old like a garment. That's why, you know, we made the joke. Some people, they get upset when their birthday come around. We're like, well, there's a cure for getting old, dying. Because all flesh is going to wax old. Just like a garment. You have a garment for 15 years. It ain't going to look the same after a few years. It's going to start waxing old and fading and coming apart at the seams. And that's like us. We get older, we start breaking and cracking and creaking, graying and balding and all types of stuff. Now you jump down to, jump over to chapter 22, and it's going to continue. Chapter 22, and read verse 11. Ecclesiasticus 22, verse 11. Weep for the dead. That he has lost the life, and weep for the fool that he wanted understanding. Make little weeping for the dead, but he is at rest. But the life of the fool is worse than death. <laughs> so, in letting you know, you can cry for the dead because they're departed, but only cry a little bit for them because they're at rest. But the ones you really got to weep for are the fools. Because their life is worse than death. They're going to be doing wickedness all their life, and they're never going to come to the mouth of the Most High unless they repent. So now we can jump to 38. Oh, no, no, you got to read 12. I'm sorry. Oh, there it is. Seven days, you can read it. Seven days do men mourn for him that is dead. But for a fool and an ungodly man all the days of his life. They mourn So... How many people do you know in your family or your friends that just sit back like, oh, what are we going to do with this boy? What are we going to do with them? They just can't get right. Why does every time you turn around, oh, my God, he's got to get him out of jail again. Oh, he's doing this again. Why? Because that's a, you're mourning for them while they're still alive because they just can't get it together. So that's why I said if you were, if a person dies, you mourn for them for seven days. For the fools, you're gonna be mourning for them all the days of their life. Thirty-eight. Please ask for chapter thirty-eight, and we're gonna start at verse sixteen. Ecclesiastes thirty-eight, verse sixteen. My son, let tears fall down over the dead, and begin to lament that if thou hast suffered great harm thyself. And then cover his body according to the custom, and neglect not his very. So it's letting you know that that's, that's always been our custom. When somebody dies, it says that they're going to make great lamentations if they have suffered harm themselves, because we do suffer harm. That goes right back to the point that Kadar made. In this world, somebody, somebody goes to a funeral, they come back, they're crying and screaming, they get home, they don't want to eat, they don't want to talk to nobody, they're depressed, they're sitting in the house moping. And somebody says, here's this medication that's going to make you feel better. You need to be on this. You need to be on that. We're going to prescribe this for you. That's not what the scripture says. You don't need nothing. 
You just need time. You need to get understanding. Sometimes you need that space. Sometimes you need somebody to be there and talk to. Sometimes you don't need nothing at all. But only somebody that's gone through that would understand that. But when you look at the people that don't understand or look at the wickedness and demonic nature of this world, they just see they just see dollar signs. That's all they see is dollar signs. Because it's like, where do you think social anxiety disorder comes from? SAD, S-A-D, social anxiety disorder. And what do they say? Do you feel nervous when you go into unfamiliar places? Do you do you get nervous when you go to a party with nobody there that you know? Do you feel like speaking in front of crowds? You do have social anxiety. No, that's bro. You sitting there making faces. That's part of social anxiety disorder. You get nervous speaking in, in front of crowds. Anybody that knows anything about psychology and knows anything about public speaking, if you ever took a public speaking class, one of the first things you learn is that statistically, people are more afraid of public speaking than drowning set on fire, than death, than falling, they're afraid of public speaking. So somebody sat back and got a smart idea, let's make that a disease. And since it's a disease, we're going to give you a pill that can make you less nervous. When it's the most natural thing in the face of the earth. Because anybody that has any type of understanding of how your body and your mind works, nervous, anxiety, Nervousness, adrenaline rushes, those are things that make us better, not worse. Like they tell a boxer, if you're a prize fighter, when you get in the ring, if you're a boxer, MMA, whatever you do, a, co- a good coach will tell you, if you're in that ring, you're supposed to be nervous. You're supposed to be scared. The day you get in there and you're not scared is the day you're going to lose and get knocked out. The reason why is because when you're nervous, when you're afraid, you get tense. And your body creates adrenaline, which is another miracle thing that the Most High gave us. What does adrenaline do? It shoots into your brain and makes your reflexes 10, 15 times faster than normally, which means you think faster, you react faster, you move faster. But somebody can come along and tell you, nah, you're just sick. You're just sick because you're not supposed to be sad. You're not supposed to be upset. You're not supposed to be depressed. You're not supposed to feel anything except numbness, and that's a lie. Because the Most High made us in His image and likeness and gave us all of those things. He gave us every single feeling we have. But He taught us temperance through the fruits of the Spirit, how we're supposed to control them. Verse 17 again. We build and make great moral and use lamentation as He is worthy. As He is what? Worthy. As He is worthy. Because a lot of times, you turn on these TVs, they have a candlelight vigil and mourn and balling for the biggest drug dealers, pimps, prostitutes, hustlers, murderers on the street. They make it murals. This is a memory of murder, my best friend. I know, I'm not joking. I mean, I mean, come on, what's my favorite show on TV? First 48. First 48. So every time you turn on it, murder was murdered on the corner. And his friends are here to celebrate his life. <laughs> and that's what happens. So you look at what's going on, and that's what it is. It's just mourn for them as they are worthy. But we have to, we're such a corrupt society. We mourn for the biggest pimps, prostitutes, drug dealers, murderers, the, the dredges of society. We mourn for them forever. But these are the same people that wouldn't mourn for Jesus Christ when he died. Continue. The, the, the R.I.P. T-shirt. Exactly. You got everywhere. Rest in peace. YOLO and all this, this madness. And you see, you can look at the shirt and see they throwing a crimp, blood sign, every other kind of madness, holding two pistols, and they talking about rest in peace. Go ahead. Verse 17. We civilly and make great moans and use annotation as he is worthy. As he is worthy. Is that a day or two? And that a day or two? It says, mourn, get it out your system, cry, shout, fall out, make a scene, do all of that. About a day or two, and then what? 
two and a half, three weeks ago. While we're on the phone, he is explaining to me what the last few years were for him and the reason why he wasn't as involved in the company as he was and the reason why me and him had never corresponded before. And he just basically said, like, listen, um, I know you were around the company for a while. Did you know that I had um, lost my wife and child? And I was, and that's a, how, how do you react somebody just tells you that in a phone call? So I just had to, well, I offer my condolences. I did not know. And he says, well, fine, let me tell you, and I'll explain to you how it happened. When he came over to the U.S. and was working, his wife had fell into a state of what they would call clinical depression. So even though he was communicating with her and was making trips, the work that he had with his line of work, not talking about the writing and stuff, he was like a, 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 he was a big wig when it came to like computer engine. I think he was a programmer, but he was a programmer. So he was doing a lot of work in the U.S. And while he was away, his wife had a bad episode, and she killed their son, and she killed herself. So I'm on the phone with this guy, and you know it's one of those things. Sometimes it's a sobering experience when you think about the things you go on in your life and you think about the losses we have in our own life. And we don't really, and Satan puts those blinders on us to make us believe you're the only person that's going through anything. Nobody else is going through nothing but you. But when you start communicating with people, you realize that that's way far away from the case. But I'll share with you something that he said. I offered my condolences and everything like that, and he was explaining, he's like, listen, it's okay, and I don't feel, he's like, I'm at the point where I can speak about it. He said, because after it happened, he's like, I realized that I had one of three choices that I could make. Choice number one, I could kill myself and join them and just give up my life. Choice number two, I could wallow in misery and despair for the rest of my life. Or choice number three, I could move on. And he's like, and I chose choice number three. He's like, although I do confess that some mornings I wake up at number two. He's like, but I made the choice to move on. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the people that understand that they have the choice to let that spirit overcome them, or they have the choice to do what the scriptures say and let that spirit of Christ heal you. So, um, Will you finish in Ecclesiastes? I'll, yeah, I'll read 23. And I'll just end the whole part about the dead. It says, when the dead is at rest, let his remembrance rest, and be comforted for him when his spirit is departed from him. Because you have a lot of people that can't do that. You've got people that got millions of dollars. What do they do? They freeze in dead bodies with the hope that they're going to come back to life one day. And the people that can't even afford to do that, they have their loved ones decapitated and their heads put in a jar and frozen with the hope that in the future they're going to attach the bodies. And this is not science fiction, make-believe. This is what people are doing now. So you look at that, that shows that they have absolutely no faith. No faith whatsoever. And it was even interesting in that documentary about cryogenics to people freezing the dead. The guy said a funny thing. He was like, listen, i got loved ones too. But when they die, I put their pictures in the mantle, not their heads. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. So go, go to Ecclesiastes 30 and 21. Ecclesiastes chapter 30, verse 21. Give not over thy mind to heaviness, and afflict not thyself in thine own counsel. So it's all going back to, you know how everything ties together, and it's letting us know we're not supposed to give our mind over to heaviness. You're not supposed to yield to that spirit, that clinical depression, as they call it, that depressive state that you can't get out of, you just wallow in the misery of life. And and how does that happen? That you what? Go ahead. Give not over thy mind to heaviness, and afflict not thyself in thine own counsel. So we've read the scriptures that said two are better than one. But what is this person here? He's the counsel of himself. Of himself. Of what? So now he's sitting counseling himself about all these issues and why this happened and why he's going through this or why he lost that or why the Most High is doing this to him. And it's all the counsel of one, which is horrible. Well, no matter what, well, we probably are seeing here because Job was doing that for a minute. 
Anybody know what a better word or a substitute word we can use for carefulness is? Worry. Thank you. And carefulness bringeth age before the time. Worry. And that's another thing that people fall into is that 